Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, and this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be with you today. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about the episode I did a few... uh a little short time ago on handshakes and drawn swords. I got a ton of feedback on that episode. We're getting about 15,000 unique ISP listens a month to the podcast. That is significant. Uh, That is just awesome. And thank you to each of you who are listening. Uh, Thank you to those who are supporting the podcast. Uh, Please, those of you who perhaps have thought about supporting the podcast financially, Please know that how important those donations are. They keep this work going. Uh, I would just hope that maybe you would consider uh, being a subscriber or making a donation to the podcast today. I want to talk a little bit about the feedback that I've gotten. Lots of listeners have written back or or posted elsewhere how appreciative they have been of of this third option. But apologists in the church have have kind of come out and uh, and attacked this uh this concept and they've listed lots of reasons and I simply wanted to go over those reasons today and just share my thoughts on why this is still an option and it doesn't have to be taken off the table because of some of the uh criticisms that they make of it now let me start off by saying this this idea of the angel visiting Joseph Smith with the drawn sword being an angel of darkness and not an angel of light, is not a view I personally hold. In fact, if I uh, were to be completely honest, I would say that I find this idea to be less valid than the other two options, which is that the angel came from God or that Joseph made the whole thing up. But what I am saying is that I don't see any kind of smoking gun that takes this option completely off the table. And what we do here at Mormon Discussion is we try to give people as many options as possible. Because just because some idea doesn't make the most sense to me, or isn't the one I find myself leaning most to, doesn't mean that that is absolutely false or absolutely true. In fact, there's people all throughout the church who are informed, intelligent people who take a different stance than I do on certain issues who feel that the facts lead them to believe that an event occurred a certain way, whereas I may take a completely different position. Um, one example would be that Jesus was born on April 6th. There are members of the church who know all the information and still think it's very possible that Jesus was born on April 6th. I don't. But that doesn't mean that we should take all the options completely off the table because the more room we can leave for people to to put things together, the more ways in which people will, and hence they'll stay in the church. And they may not be able to align themselves with an issue or two, 
but that generally they can move forward and lead with faith. And that's the point of the podcast. So for the apologists who have been critical, please know that this is not my personal view, but that I absolutely will fight for it because I want it to have a place at the table so that rather than someone leaving the church because they just cannot reconcile 132 as having come from God, this gives them an option that allows them to still see Joseph Smith as a prophet, seer, and revelator and allows them to move forward in the church. And since 132, uh, in terms of polygamy, is no longer even relevant in today's doctrine, then it shouldn't even be important. But but some have felt it is. And so I'd like to lay out uh, some of the ideas of what people have said and in why I simply say that those are not good enough reasons to pull this option off the table. Number one, there are apologists in the church who have said that Joseph Smith... Uh, absolutely does follow the rules that he sets in section 132. And I would just simply say that uh, simply saying that uh, doesn't make it so. There are differences of opinion. And while I respect the apologist who who point to this idea and say, yeah, he absolutely follows the rules that he sets, I would simply disagree and say he may have, but I think a reader of section 132 and a reader of LDS history can also easily come to the conclusion that no, he didn't. And that that raises in their mind a red flag. And one has to come to grips with why Joseph seems to be struggling to practice 132 as it was laid out to him. Um, again, I think there's room for various opinions on this. And any opinion that doesn't have people throwing out their basic beliefs in the church, uh, I think has room for discussion within a faithful paradigm. Number two is that some apologists have indicated that the man in the white robe is a good person and that it is, you know, because of him being a guide to Lehi, that in a sense, this guide has moved Lehi through the mist of darkness to get him to a place where he can see the tree. Here's the struggle with that. The man in the white robe leads Lehi, leads Lehi to the dark and dreary wasteland. And then Lehi, rather than depend on that guide, that angel that took him there, seems to decide to abandon that uh, that path and instead seeks out God directly. While the man in the white robe being good is a valid assumption. I would not take that off the table. The man not being good seems more logical to me and to other readers. I was not the first person to come up with this. And others who have read this have have given me this idea to say, hey, wait a minute, have you ever considered this guy, this angel, this guide who is leading Nephi? This This idea of the angel being an angel of darkness seems more logical based on the reading. Now, I get it. I know that there are some apologetic writings that talk about uh, the theme within uh, Hebrew writings of people who have divine dreams and visions, having angels as guides, taking them through these dreams and visions. I get that. And, and again, that's a valid assumption. But when I read this story, I look at this angel and I say, what is he doing? He leads Nephi to the dark and dreary wasteland. 
And then Lehi no longer asks the angel where to get, how to get to where he needs to go. He instead, instead departs from this angel. We hear nothing more about this guide. And instead he seeks out God directly. And then he's taken out of this dark and dreary wasteland and permitted to see the tree of life. And then begins to find his way to it. And neither assumption of this angel changes our testimony of Lehi as a prophet or the Book of Mormon as scripture. In other words, both views are valid. Neither diminishes faith. Hence, without further light and knowledge, both are permitted a seat at the table. Number three, just because the dream involves a deceiving spirit does not limit the dream as unable to come from God. Some people have insinuated to me that by saying this is a angel of darkness, that hence the entire Book of Mormon must come from the devil. That seems like a real black and white perspective. It's no different or no more than Satan's interference in the first vision limits Joseph's vision as being not from God. We have plenty of instances. The scriptures talk of Satan tempting Jesus. I just don't think that that's a, a logical perspective to even take. I think very easily the angel in the Book of Mormon can be an angel of darkness. While Lehi is still a prophet, the Book of Mormon is still scripture, and the story still comes from God. Number four, some have dismissed the Adam-God uh, revelation from Brigham simply because it does not affect salvation. I've had uh, apologists say to me that this Adam-God idea doesn't matter, but section 132 is so important that uh, that we can't take this view. And I would argue that while I agree the Adam-God revelation has no bearing on salvation, yet it is huge in terms of precedent of dismissing what a past prophet claimed as certainty and as revelation, as divine knowledge of a revealed truth, that you can brush it aside as not important for one reason or another, but I will push its importance for a whole host of other reasons. That when a prophet claims revelation, claims to know something from God, and we now dismiss it, that that has repercussions that are important and need to be discussed. Number five, it is claimed that without section 132, we don't have ceilings in eternal nature of families, that that's the only place we get that. And yet we have ceiling keys that come from Elijah in Kirtland that we have recorded in another revelation. We also have other pieces of this puzzle in other places. Also, 132 is not one revelation. Rather, it is several revelations placed into one section. This is not clean cut. To parse out section 132 into different pieces and to dismiss those that we feel as an individual, and again, I'm not saying the church should throw out 132. I'm saying that an individual member of the church can be both a faithful, leading with faith, active Latter-day Saint, and completely dismiss parts of or the entirety of section 132. And so a member, knowing that 132 is multiple revelations put together, knowing that polygamy is essentially not an active principle in today's church, there's no reason why somebody couldn't dismiss parts of section 132. And so I think to say that 132 is the only place we get ceilings, it's the only place we know about eternal families, and that dismissing 132 would then dismiss major doctrine in the church, I don't think that this is clean cut. Number six, there have been some apologists who have pointed out that 
Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner does say that Joseph, that she asked Joseph if it is possible that the angel came from Satan and that Joseph told her that he knew how to discern angels by this point and he knew the angel was an angel of light. But here's my trouble. And and I will say, I think this is the best evidence. This is the closest thing we get to a smoking gun that puts down this idea of the angel with the drawn sword coming from the adversary. But while it is the best defense, and I think the strongest evidence against my theory, she is the only witness who says this. And her account is coming quite late in age. It's in her late 80s. And it's 62 years after section 132 is delivered. One could easily wonder if multiple events are being conflated into one story. Here's this lady who's in her late 80s, 62 years after the event has passed. And and we have to ask, is it possible that she is mixing up what was said during that conversation with Joseph or what came later after section 129 was delivered and her and Joseph had another conversation? Is it possible to mix up multiple conversations? Is it possible to mix up multiple events when this much time stands in between them? I think that even apologists can't disagree with that because multiple times apologists use this same rationale in their own arguments. That we have to dismiss this witness or this source because so much time has passed. Lots of defenders of the church are dismissing sources when they come really late and seem to not be substantiated by other witnesses. And yet we're going to hold this witness up and say, this defies all the rules that we've used in the past to discredit other witnesses who speak out against the history and doctrine of the church. Number seven, to offer others who had a testimony of polygamy as a defense. So some apologists have said that, hey, we can't dismiss 132. Do you realize the number of brethren and sisters who speak about having a spiritual testimony or even a spiritual experience and know that polygamy is true. So to offer others who had a testimony of polygamy as a defense, one will also have to deal with the instances where others had a testimony and were wrong. For instance, the top 15 men in the church on the race theories, others who had a testimony of Adam God, Brigham Young says that there are many who knew that his Adam God doctrine was true. How about others who followed the woolies into fundamentalism, into polygamous sex offshoots of the church, etc.? Having others who feel led to support a teaching does not demand it be accepted as truth in a scholarly approach. Rather, history tells us that groups of people believe lots of things, some of which turn out to be true and some of which turn out to be completely false. There are cults that have groups of people who have killed themselves simply because they are so committed to belief in some idea or some belief system and feel spiritually connected to those beliefs that they know they are true. So it simply doesn't work. Number eight, to argue that we must accept 132 because it is in the voice of the Lord is also a strong rebuttal point. In other words, apologists have said that section 132 is in the voice of God. That because it is the Lord himself speaking, or Heavenly Father himself speaking, that this cannot be dismissed as being uh, a revelation from the angel with the drawn sword. 
that sounds really strong at first. When that was first said to me, I thought, oh, wait a minute. They might have something here. I might have to go on and just completely dismiss this idea and say, look, you either have to choose that 132 came from God or you're going to have to choose that Joseph Smith made the whole thing up. But then I got to thinking. I remembered being younger just after I joined the church and doing some reading uh, on apologetic sites. And I remember a discussion about angels speaking on behalf of God. So this point is actually not as strong as one might think, as LDS.org and Fair Mormon both acknowledge that angels can deliver divine messages as if spoken by the Lord himself. The 1978, I believe it's the October 1978 enzyme, there's a section titled, I Have a Question. And then there's also a section on fairmormon.org about Mormonism and the nature of God, Elohim and Jehovah. Listen to these quotes. Sometimes it seems as if God the Father is speaking, and then it seems to be Christ. Quote, even angels speak as if they were Christ. And so this idea is reiterated both on Fair Mormon as well as on LDS.org. And we certainly recognize this in past dispensations that angels have come and have spoken in the name of Christ or in the name of God. But yet, I don't know if we pick out any instances in this dispensation and say that is what is happening. Why all of a sudden does God always speak for God and Christ always speaks for Christ, but in past dispensations, that was not always the case. I think we ought to at least leave room that angels, possibly even angels coming on behalf of the adversary, could attempt to speak for God or speak for Christ. That Joseph, in a sense, would write the words down as if they came from God, but that he would also recognize that it was an angel that delivered them. And that while he assumes the angel is an angel of light, it is possible, it is feasible, that it was not. Number nine. If Joseph was deceived, some apologists have insinuated that this makes him less of a prophet. I would disagree. That's making an assumption and one that is not a fact, but a point of view. Is Brigham Young less of a prophet because he was mistaken about Adam God and that it was a self-proclaimed revelation? Were the brethren in the 1940s less of prophets, seers, and revelators because they were mistaken about the race theories as doctrine? To me, this argument is weak, has so many exceptions that you can throw out there, and it also opens a huge can of worms. Because then it brings into question every past leader who has made a mistake. Um, When Elder Bednar said that he, you know, we as a church knew that Jesus was born on April 6th, he was mistaken. Does that make him less of a prophet, seer, and revelator? I think that's silly. And I don't think apologists would want to go down this path. Uh, I think it would be a, a bad argument to try and make. Number 10. Some apologists have said that truth is lost when we let go of hard things. Yet we have to let go of so many hard things in our faith, right? We've let go of race theories, Adam, God, blood atonement. There are bunches and bunches of things that we have let go because we've come to grips with the fact that these are too hard and that God may not or was not necessarily behind them. Again, this is opinion that to let go of any difficult thing in the church that some hold to be true is faith diminishing. I know hundreds of people who would disagree and have found increased faith in the church 
as they have let go of old teachings and doctrines that were uncomfortable that they no longer believe to be true. Evolution, age of the earth, whatever those things are, global flood, whatever they are. I know people whose faith has increased the moment they were given room to dismiss hard things. And just because something is a hard thing doesn't mean it is true. Many hard things we have let go of in the church. We now agree that the brethren today, the church as a whole today says, yeah, no one's held to that point of view, even though we kind of enforced that in years past. Number 11. Some apologists have said that, no, you can't put across the Adam-God idea that many in the church disagreed with that idea. I would say to to say many disagreed with the Adam-God theory would also be to open a can of worms. Because outside the Pratt brothers, and really Parley is gone by this point, it's really just Orson Pratt who is who is disagreeing with Brigham. I am, uh, outside of Orson Pratt, I'm really unaware of many leaders who felt Brigham was wrong. In fact, Heber C. Kimball and Wilford Woodruff both stood up on multiple occasions in multiple quotes and agreed that while Orson is disagreeing with Brigham, Brigham's right. The Adam-God theory is true. So we have, we have multiple prophets, seers, and revelators agreeing with Brigham Young that the revelation came from God and that it's true and that Orson would be best to soften up and come to grips with this uh, with this doctrine. I don't think we really want to go down this path where we start arguing that uh, lots of people in the church disagreed. I mean, yes, lay members may have disagreed, but we really want to start talking about ideas that lots of lay members disagree with. That would throw lots of debatable issues in the church right now out the door simply because lots of lay members disagree with it. To say that 14 out of the 15 brethren agreed with the Adam-God doctrine and that one leader disagreed and to then say that many disagreed, you're either talking about lay people or you're completely wrong about the leaders of the church and their opinion of the time. I think that I would like to conclude simply by saying this. I think a big issue in Mormonism is not to allow various lines of thought and to force people to eat the whole elephant or leave. Mormonism is so full of paradoxes, contradictions, complexities, that to impose one view is absolutely right, and all others must succumb to it, leaves little room for many, many members of the church. Now, I'll agree, I am a huge proponent of not touching the basic doctrine of Christ, faith, repentance, saving ordinances, and enduring to the, enduring to the end. I also uh, am a big fan of the Articles of Faith and the basic things those state. I also have no problem with the temple questions because I feel there's enough room there that for those having a hard time, they can still interact with those questions in an honest way and still walk out of an interview with the bishop if there's even just one drop of hope in those things with a valid temple recommend. Now, again, that'll depend on the leader roulette that you get, but I certainly see it as possible. I want to leave room for people. I've had leaders tell me I've had to wear a white shirt, that I've had to interpret tithing as they do, that I've had to interpret the word of wisdom as they do, that resurrected beings will be white, that I must accept that Joseph never got anything wrong doctrinally while also allowing Brigham to get several doctrines wrong, to follow leaders even when they're wrong, to interpret true and living church as they do, and many other ideas have been put across to me as things that I have to accept within the church. Hundreds and hundreds of imposed beliefs. And yet I stand here to say that the church, whether it knows it or not, 
is more flexible than all of this nonsense. This rigid Mormonism doesn't work for me and it doesn't work for others. We need room. Nothing about the suggested option I speak of in, in the episode on the handshakes and drawn swords forces one to see the church as not true or Joseph as a fallen prophet or worse, a fraud. It doesn't. It does force us to see prophets as more fallible and see revelation as more open to air. But in reality, isn't that already proven with other issues in church history? Come on, guys. It's messy. In the messiness, you can't tell people, believe it all or leave. Rather, in the messiness, people need room to think it through and to hold on to that which is good. Prove the principles of polygamy are good, and you will easily win them to your side. Personally, I struggle to see the way the brethren talked about and treated their wives at times as having God's approval. I struggle to see the effects that polygamy has on the wives and the children as a positive. And so until I can make it fit, I've set much of 132 on a shelf and I worry about other things that I know are true, or at least I know bear good fruit. Thank you for listening. May the Lord warm your shoulders. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Taking out my issues never here